Hello, and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.9, The Colonies in 1700. Welcome back. Today, I want to take a tour through the colonies and see just what everybody is up to at the turn of the century. We have already talked a lot about the politics at the end of the 17th century, and even to some degree the politics at the beginning of the 18th. However, for this week, I want to pause and take a look around the colonies to see just where they stand at the turn of the 18th century. Who were the colonists at that time? What did the economy look like? What were trends that were coming into practice and other trends that were fading away? I hope that by doing this, we can move forward with a more clear picture of who everybody is and just what they're up to at the dawn of the 18th century. Over the course of this podcast, we have spent a lot of time talking about who the colonists were. We talked about who came over from England to Virginia, the Puritans in New England, and the Quakers in Pennsylvania. Well, the early story of the colonies was largely made up of these different, often religiously outcast groups coming over. By the time that the 18th century begins, the colonies have become far more diverse. This, as we have discussed, would cause tension in those colonies where typically Anglicans would be clashing with the dominant religious factions. Prior to the 1680s, immigration to the North American colonies had been almost exclusively English. However, following 1680, there is a marked increase from other countries. Suddenly, you have an influx of Scots, Germans, French Huguenots, Irish, Swiss, and Jews coming into the colonies. This gives us a lot of clues to exactly who was coming over and who these new groups were made up of and will help us explain why the English North American colonies provided such a desirable place to settle, especially when it comes to the French Huguenots and the Jews. Immediately, that old story of escaping religious persecution jumps to mind. Without jumping into the entire muddled history of the relationship between the French crown and the Huguenots, who were the French Protestants, suffice it to say that the situation was not exactly ideal. Louis XIV had revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685. The Edict of Nantes had given the French Huguenots not only the ability to practice their religion, but to do so safe from persecution. With it being revoked, you now had a large number of Frenchmen interested in getting out of the country. These Huguenots often came out of the skilled labor class in France, which meant that when they relocated to the far more tolerant English North American colonies, it brought an influx of skilled labor and artisans into the colonies. During the latter part of the 17th century, younger colonies, desperate for new colonists, were more than happy to advertise to the Huguenots, specifically in regards to the Carolinas and Pennsylvania. While William Penn would surely have been happy to have the extra income, the majority of the immigrants made their way to the Carolinas, with a handful of others ending up in New York. Knowing this, the question becomes why we do not see a huge expansion in the number of Huguenot churches throughout the colonies. Part of the reason for this is that after coming to North America, there is little evidence that this group remained anywhere near as cohesive as other groups did, like, for example, the Quakers or the Puritans. Rather, the Huguenots basically just blended into the existing society. Part of this is that unlike the Quakers or the Puritans, there was not a central colony where they all settled. This means that their population in any one place remained lower despite their population growing overall throughout the colonies. In fact, for the most part among the groups coming over in the coming decades, we really fail to see colonies appear that are unified behind a single religious belief. A lot of this stems out of simple pragmatism, 
as the North American colonies grew and became increasingly diversified, it made more sense to go and assimilate into one of the existing colonies rather than attempt to take on the considerable expense and risk of forming something new altogether. It is also worth considering that over the last few decades, there has been considerable expansion amongst the colonies throughout North America. During the course of last season, we saw the establishment of Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and finally the conversion of the Dutch New Netherlands into New York. Each one of these new colonies offered potential colonists new opportunities to make profit without nearly the risk of trying to start up something brand new. During this same period, you also begin to see a steep increase in Jewish immigration into the colonies. While there had been Jews before, since at least the 1650s, it is near the end of the century that their numbers would begin steadily increasing. Unsurprisingly, the locations in which you find Jewish settlements is in those colonies that have a history of more or less being tolerant towards other religions. This would make New York and Rhode Island popular landing ground for Jewish immigrants. Interestingly, it is not until 1706 that there is evidence of a Jewish settlement inside of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania would have been an obvious place to settle considering that they had always been friendly to religious dissidents and outsiders. There seems to be little information out there about why Jewish populations were avoiding Pennsylvania. However, it is important to remember that these communities would remain small, often numbering in just the hundreds. These small numbers go a long way towards explaining why there was less of a movement towards an exclusively Jewish colony, as they simply did not have the numbers to support it. Germans would also find themselves crossing the Atlantic and settling in North America. This immigration gets started around 1710 and would continue right up until the Revolution. Years of warfare and religious upheaval in Europe had made those living throughout Central Europe anxious to find something a bit more stable. A number of those leaving chose to move to the North American English colonies. A lot of this movement is still a ways in our future, so for today I just want to make you aware that it is coming. We are going to come back a few times, however, to the German immigrants in the future, as their numbers are going to soar just prior to the American Revolution. For now, however, just know that there is going to be a major immigration with Pennsylvania being a particularly popular spot for Germans to settle. Beginning in 1718 and lasting up until the eve of the Revolution, a large number of those coming over were convicts from England. Now, everybody knows that England liked to ship their convicts to other places ideally other continents. The most famous example of this is the use of portions of Australia as a penal colony. However, Australia was not alone in receiving convicts, as the English sent nearly 50,000 convicts to the North American colonies. It was after the loss of the North American colonies when England had to look for a new place to send their convicts, and Australia became the go-to location. It is worth a mention that despite this group coming over with generally few skills, the evidence does not suggest that they turned to a life of crime once they arrived in the colonies. All of this meant that the colonies were undergoing a large period of sustained growth. We are going to talk quite a bit more about this growth moving forward, and we'll have an episode down the road a bit, talking about the major population expansion that took place during the 18th century. As the population of the colonies began to increase through the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century, so did the colonial economy. The increase in the economy is not simply proportional to the population growth either. The economy grew both larger and faster than mere population growth alone can explain. So, what was the colonial economy made up of, and why was it experiencing a period of such tremendous growth? 
I want to spend our time talking about two specific aspects of the colonial economy. First, I want to talk about the colonial economy at large. This will be primarily focused on how the economy was interacting with England. Second, I want to look at the economy internally and how it was evolving and diversifying within the colonial structure itself. When we think about the colonial economy of the 17th and 18th century, we are generally looking at two things, imports and exports. What is so often ignored is production within the colonies that is not being exported, but rather used within those same colonies. So the question therefore becomes, why is this? Why don't we talk about it? The reason for this relates to the records that we have on the matter. England of the 17th and 18th century was a bureaucratic behemoth. In the regular course of maintaining the empire, records were kept in order to allow the English to better assess the colonial economies. For England, what they were concerned about was imports and exports. This falls in line with what we have already seen. We have spent the better part of the last 30 episodes discussing the stressors that were being placed on the colonies with the enforcement of the Navigation Acts. Without clear and thorough record-keeping, the Navigation Acts would have been all but impossible to enforce. England, therefore, had a keen interest in doing what they could to fully understand what was coming into and going out of the colonies. What is far more difficult to ascertain, however, was commerce that was going on completely contained within those colonies. England's main concern was what kind of economic traffic was occurring between the colonies in England. Therefore, if somebody in the colonies bought a chair that was produced entirely within the colonies, it is far less likely that the transaction would be reflected in the colonial economy. The practical effect of this is that the colonial economies were often understated, as good records simply do not exist to tell the tale of what was going on with the economy internally. We do know, however, that this segment of the economy was indeed booming. While broader numbers are lacking, we do have evidence that has been maintained in the form of sales records from the era. Likewise, we know from earlier today that there was a growing artisan class within the colonies. Beginning in the later part of the 17th century, we see more and more accumulation of wealth within the colonies. This wealth drove the market for luxury goods. As an increasing number of people lived more and more comfortably, they wanted those luxuries that to this point had only been available in Europe and had made for expensive imports. However, with the growing number of artisans, production of such items could now take place much closer to home. It is also around this time that you begin to see a system of apprenticeships take form, a staple tradition amongst many artisans of the era. Records of a growing number of apprenticeships further indicates the growth of the overall status of the intercolonial demand for luxury goods, typically produced by artisans and craftsmen. From this information, though admittedly records could be better, we get a peek in at what life was like in the colonies following 1680. Primarily, we have evidence that more and more people had more and more money. This is not to say that there is now widespread wealth throughout North America. However, what it does indicate is that segments of the population are beginning to do better than they previously had. People were, at a minimum, doing good enough to provide the demand necessary to see the expansion of artisans during that time. It is important to make the distinction here that, despite me talking about better conditions and increasing wealth, the emerging aristocracy in the colonies was not analogous to the aristocracy back in England. The fact remained that this class in England had far, far more accumulated wealth. 
This is to say nothing of the fact that while the English aristocracy back on the home islands had hereditary titles, this is not something that would ever exist in the colonies. It does make sense that with a larger population, you are going to have more people producing items to export. Likewise, a growing population would explain why there would be more interest in importing items as more people generally means more imports. However, that does not really explain what we are seeing here. This type of economic growth is not just explained through population growth. Now, I do want to move through this portion relatively quickly because we are going to have an episode specifically on economic growth in the colonies. However, know for today that much of this growth came as there was an increasing movement throughout the colonies away from traditional subsistence farming and towards more commercialized farming practices. Virginia and indeed the rest of the Chesapeake colonies had long been in this position as tobacco continued to be king. However, up in New England, we see a growing movement towards farming for the purpose of export. Well, New England colonists held considerably less land per individual than down in, say, the Chesapeake, they still did have the ability to farm enough to sell off amounts of excess. Few individuals in New England were necessarily getting rich off of the excess sales. However, when it came to the amount being exported by the region at large, there was still a good amount of product being moved. Subsistence farming did remain critical. After all, our colonies still need to eat. However, it was around this time that the colonists began paying a lot more attention to what could be sold. It was commonplace in New England for the entire family to have to be involved in the farming process. While the men would often do the more physically intensive jobs such as plowing the fields, the entire family really was involved. Women would have the job of running the household, which typically included responsibilities such as cooking, making clothes, churning butter, and helping take care of the farm. Other common tasks for women would include things like salty meat and working to maintain and process preservatives. Regardless of the specifics of what they were all doing, farming in New England was often a full family affair. While commercialized farming practices were expanding throughout New England, the majority of exports from the colonies were still coming out of the Chesapeake. It was also during this time that other colonies found particular specialties in what they were producing. For example, New York would become the dominant fur trading colony within British North America. It is important to be clear on this that we are limiting our discussion here simply to the colonies that would form the future United States, of course. New York did pale in comparison to the amount of fur being moved out of Canada. Likewise, during this time we see South Carolina emerge with rice as their cash crop. As was the case with tobacco, rice growth required large amounts of land and is particularly labor-intensive. This would in turn lead to the expansion of slavery within South Carolina. Well, the late 17th and early 18th century saw the beginning of a massive population and economic boom in the colonies. It also saw another kind of growth. In 1670, slavery in the North American English colonies was a very limited enterprise and consisted of fewer than 1,000 slaves throughout the future United States. By the end of the colonial era, however, a century later, that number would be in excess of half a million. In fact, to this point in the podcast, I've talked relatively little about slavery. This is not because I'm trying to avoid the subject, but rather because it is not until the 1680s that you really begin to see any substantial growth of slavery within the colonies. 
Moving forward from this point, we are going to be spending more time on slavery as it begins to play a much more important role for colonial politics. We are going to have a series of episodes a little bit later this season focused on different aspects of slavery. However, for today, I want to look specifically at the question of why slavery began a period of rapid growth so suddenly. What was driving the movement and how did that begin to shape life throughout the colonies? The increased use of slaves really begins to appear following the events of Bacon's Rebellion. Well, slavery did exist throughout the colonies prior to that. It is only after Bacon's Rebellion that we really see that rapid expansion that would come to dominate the coming century. Bacon's Rebellion had really turned off a lot of Virginia planters to the idea of using indentured servants. Following the rebellion, everybody recognized that, as a group of people, the indentured servants could be used as pawns in future conflicts. Well, the same concerns did exist for slaves. The fact is that slave owners had far more latitude in what they could do when it came to their slaves, as opposed to what they were able to get away with when it came to indentured servants. At the same time that the colonists were growing increasingly uneasy with indentured servitude, conditions back in England were also changing. Fewer and fewer people had interest in leaving the home islands. Rumors had made it back to England of the rough treatment that the indentured servants often received. Additionally, indentured servitude had long been used back in England as a method whereby to keep the poor population in check. Recall us talking back in our early episodes about the need to ship the urban poor to the colonies. By the time the 1680s had rolled around, however, this practice had largely fallen out of use. So, setting the scene, you have colonists in America who are becoming increasingly concerned with their indentured servants rising up and killing them in a future rebellion. In England, you have less concern with shipping away the urban poor to the colonies and fewer and fewer people wanting to become indentured. All of this going on at roughly the same time that you begin to see widespread economic growth in the colonies. In the South, where labor-intensive crops such as tobacco and rice were king, there was considerable demand for a labor force, while the number of available indentured servants was declining. With the increasing need for labor, slaves became the direction that many chose to go. This further coincided with the opening up of the slave trade in the late 17th century. With far more slaves now being available on the market in North America, the price to purchase one dropped considerably. Beyond market dynamics, there was also a mixed sense of pragmatism and vanity that drove the rise of slavery. Slaves cost more than indentured servants. This makes sense as the indentured servant was only indentured for a period of seven years before the owner lost their use. Beyond that, there were far more limitations on what the public as a whole was comfortable with when it came to an indentured servant. Indentured servants, for instance, were normally Christians. They were often made up of the poorest class back in England. Slaves, on the other hand, had different religions. They spoke differently. They looked different. Descriptions of African slaves referred to them as being brutish people. It was often accepted that punishments of African slaves could be far more severe than English law would generally allow. The reasoning behind this goes back to what I just said a moment ago, that the English viewed the slaves as being a brutish, uncivilized kind of people. Fear over the growing population of slaves allowed for those harsher punishments to take place. With their numbers quickly growing, slave owners wanted to be sure that they were able to have near-complete control over the slave community. 
the amount of control and leeway that an individual farmer was going to be able to exercise over a slave is therefore far greater than they would have had over some poor indentured servant coming over from England. There is, however, also a vanity that goes along with this entire situation that cannot be completely discounted. Slave ownership became something of a status symbol. There was a desire among some to outdo their neighbor in how many slaves they owned. Owning indentured servants suddenly was seen as something that only the poorest farmers had to do. Anybody with any means was going to want to own a slave. This would help explain a decline in the indentured servant population, while at the same time serving as a further catalyst for the continued growth of slavery. When looking at slavery today, it is easy to think of it as something that was stuck exclusively in the South. And while that would eventually become the situation, it was not always that way. Slavery proliferated throughout all of the colonies. It is interesting to note that we know that slavery existed in Pennsylvania, as well as the fact that William Penn himself was a slave owner. Now, we are jumping the gun here a bit, but as we are going to see in the future, the Quakers are going to be very strong proponents of abolition. However, during Penn's lifetime in Pennsylvania, that debate remained in its earliest stages. The practice would grow far more in the southern colonies, largely out of sheer pragmatism. The southern colonies in general contained much larger plantations and crops that were far more labor-intensive than we see up in the north. Likewise, as the slave population grew there, somewhat paradoxically, there became a far greater demand for slaves. Managing large slave estates was a time-consuming and difficult task. Much to the considerable annoyance of the slave owners, slaves do require a basic amount of infrastructure just to survive. Slaves need to eat, they need somewhere to live, they need clothing and basic medical care. If a slave dies prematurely, that would mean a loss of revenue for the owner. This is to say nothing of the fact that large slave populations required considerable amounts of overseers and managers. Those who owned large numbers of slaves would often import more slaves to take care of these basic tasks. There was also the matter of natural population growth, which came from the slaves marrying and having children born into bondage. What emerges is a system where every slave would have a very specific task to complete. This would become known as the task system. It allowed the slave owner to narrow down what an individual slave did to a few predefined tasks. This would, at least in theory, help to increase productivity. This would become especially prevalent on larger plantations where a single owner held numerous slaves. The task system would become the predominant form of slavery in the colonies, generally replacing the gang labor system. The gang labor system was focused on having a large number of slaves, all thrown at a single task. Well, being an easier system to manage in some ways, it did tend to produce worse results as speed was valued over quality. Slaves were more likely to resist the often strict punishments that came with the gang labor system. The task system, by limiting the task an individual slave did, often meant that the person would become far more skilled in that particular application. Especially in a situation where a single owner had a large population, the task system made far more sense. As an interesting consequence, by having so many slaves fit into such particular tasks, it would have the effect of creating far more cohesive slave communities, something that the individual owner would have preferred to avoid. As we are going to see in an episode a little ways down the road, it is likewise important to consider that as the 18th century progresses, the number of slaves becomes a huge proportion of the population throughout the southern colonies. 
1680 Virginia, for example, slaves made up approximately 2% of the population. A century later, in 1780, slaves would make up a majority of the population in the now state of Virginia. I talked earlier about unease regarding indentured servants. However, those same feelings did exist when it came to the growing slave population. As a result, you see a wide range of slave codes passed in the different colonies that sought to protect the owners and prevent the organization and execution of rebellions. I want you to be aware that during the early 18th century, there was a rapid adoption of slave codes throughout the colonies. However, that is all I'm going to say on this for this week. As I have already indicated, later this season I do have an episode planned where we are going to look more closely at slave codes as well as the reality of slave rebellions. So for now, just know that there were indeed rebellions and slave codes of varying harshness. We will look at all that more in depth down the road. Slavery's rapid rise in the colonies would change more than just the population. It would also bring with it massive economic changes as well. Indeed, by the early 18th century, slaves became the single most valuable commodity in all of the Chesapeake colonies, even outpacing the value of the land itself. By the time that 1710 rolls around, slaves were often the single most valuable element of a southern plantation. In turn, the individual net worth of the southern farmers was soon being measured in the number of slaves they held. This would have the effect of leading individual slave owners to wanting to own more and more slaves to increase their own holdings. As the individual purchased more slaves, they wanted to get a good return on their investment, which led them to moving towards an increasingly commercial farming operation. Of course, the additional slaves required the support we spoke about a moment ago, which meant even more slaves. One of the elements of the slave economy is that the slave owners were constantly in a position where they were trying to maximize profits while keeping overhead low. The solution that they found to this was allowing the individual slaves to tend to small crops on their own or raise a handful of livestock. This would allow the slaves to supplement their diets and meant that the slave owner could get by spending less money on feeding his slaves. Likewise, the slaves often were allowed to sell the surplus from these small personal farms. While on the surface being allowed to sell that surplus and hence make small amounts of profit from it might sound surprising, it was more of a cost-cutting measure than anything else. Knowing that their slaves may have a small amount of profit from their surplus meant that they were on their own to buy things such as clothes and materials for their own survival. Under this system, therefore, really what we see is owners being able to reduce their own overhead rather than the slaves being able to enrich themselves by making a profit off that excess from their own crops. It is also worth mentioning that this system is not going to last forever and over time will slowly fade out. I'm going to leave slavery here for right now. However, as I said a while ago, slavery is going to begin to become a larger and larger topic moving forward. The practice of slavery is going to have huge implications for the economic, political, and cultural realities for the future United States. While it had existed in the colonies for decades, it is really in that period following 1680 that it will really begin having that transformative effect. One of the most important things that we are going to be talking about as we move forward through this season is this explosive period of growth, both in terms of population and economic, that the colonies experience throughout the first half of the 18th century. 
this growth is going to go a long way towards explaining why independence came when it did. We had previously discussed the chatter about independence during Bacon's Rebellion. I think this provides a nice bookend for this particular part of our story. I generally like to avoid reading any significance into the fact that Bacon's Rebellion took place exactly 100 years before the Declaration of Independence. It is certainly a cool little bit of trivia, but really it provides nothing meaningful to the analysis. The one place that I do think we can dig a little bit more into that 100-year time gap is why in 1676, independence was just mere rumblings and really nothing more than a fever dream. Whereas a hundred years later, it would become a reality. One of the problems that the colonists would have faced with a 1676 independence movement would have come from a substantially smaller population. Now, of course, this reason alone is not a complete explanation. However, let's consider this aspect for just a moment. In 1676, the population of Virginia and Maryland was a combined 50,000. This number is obviously an estimate and further ignores the slave population of both colonies. Though, to be fair, in 1676, the number of slaves would have been a relatively negligible proportion of the overall population. 100 years later, the combined population of these two colonies was approximately 650,000. Even if 1676 had become a larger struggle and all the colonies then in existence had jumped into the fight, there was still only a combined population of around 110,000 throughout all of the colonies. This is a far bit lower than the over 2 million people the colonies had on the eve of the American Revolution. While there were rumblings and dreams of independence during Bacon's Rebellion, one of the primary reasons why historians side with the fact that a full revolution was not possible is simply because the numbers just were not there, both in terms of population as well as economic and overall production capabilities. The colonies in 1676 were still far too reliant on England for there to have been any real chance that they would have been able to successfully declare their independence. By the time of the revolution, the colonies had much more sizable populations. With more people came far more production and more meaningful ability of the country to engage in international trade. As we are going to see, it is over the course of the 18th century that the colonies were able to build up the resources necessary for something like independence to become more than a pipe dream. Now, as I have said several times today, later this season, we are going to spend far more time and several episodes looking at these topics with far more depth, as well as carrying the conversation out further into the 18th century. For today, I wanted to ensure that you have an idea of where the colonies stood at the turn of the century and to take a look at some of the trends that were just now beginning that would help to define the next half century of colonial history. Next time, we are going to spend our episode looking at a topic that has come up a few times now, but one that we have not really delved into. During the later part of the 17th century and into the first decades of the 18th century, piracy would come to play a critical role in the colonial economies, much to the chagrin of the leadership back in London. Next time, we are going to spend our time looking at piracy and just how it changed the landscape in the colonies. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here then, where we will settle in and have a chat about pirates. <laughs>